I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think that's the first time I've ever heard Chris curse. Back to the front three today it is adamless as we must i don't know if this is public knowledge actually let's just call it public knowledge sure adam <laughs> is uh adam is celebrating a significant day in his life and that's all that's important <laughs> yeah uh, my god um th- there are two p- other people on the podcast joining me to compose a front three is uh kristen hennage good evening and nico morales how you doing uh very good thank you i hope that both of you are well despite thousands and thousands of new cases of coronavirus popping up in both of your areas. Uh, can we get a quick update on that, actually? Because I feel like a lot of people more recently have basically gone, Black Lives Matter, tick, completed it. Corona, tick, completed it. Completed it. Uh, Chris, we came to you not long ago when it seemed as if New York was the epicenter of all things corona in the United States. It, I uh, am not really concentrating on corona anymore, if I'm honest. I feel like it's sort of left the news cycle and having a child has sort of taken my um, <laughs> my uh, interest elsewhere. Uh, but I am interested to to know what's, it, what's, it, what's going on in the States. Yeah, I think corona is a snake in the grass. It's there, but you can't see it maybe as much in the news cycle. Um, and then I think politics is the backing music to this entire country from what I've seen in my brief exposure right. here. So it, it, it's either one of those and, and I don't think there's a third channel on the TV at the minute, but we'll get there. I'm sure at some point. So, so what's, what's the up and down then in New York? Is it getting better or is it getting worse? I think it's marginally on the rise again, um, right. which makes me think maybe it's more like a, a wave type scenario. Um, right. But yeah, you know, when I go out, there's a lot of people not wearing masks or not wearing masks across their nose, which, right. you know, is, is in itself, frustrating in its own way because you think they're trying but they're not doing what they're supposed to and mm-hmm. this is a country founded on liberty so <laughs> a lot of people are quite happy to do what they feel is right for them and what they want to do so it's hard to convince them that there's not a safety in in all of us applying the same measures to keep each other safe yes yeah, strange when some of the people uh who have that liberty aren't quite smart enough to apply that liberty but then again that is their liberty uh, to smartly or uh, stupidly apply. Um, but Nick, what about you? I mean, we were just talking before the podcast, every sport seems to be converging on Orlando right now as 
you guys are the the ultimate sporting capital. Uh, in many ways, you're the Loughborough of the United States uh, because everyone goes to you because they think you're good for hosting sports, but ultimately you're not going to educate anyone. <laughs> it's a UK university joke. You'll only really get it if you've been to the UK university system. It's because people who go to Loughborough tend to be good at sports, but not very good in anything but, say, accounting. I love my jokes uh, thoroughly explained. Um, yeah, no. It's, <laughs> then you'll love me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, I think as Chris sort of painted it there, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, there was a specific focus on it for quite a while. And then people have decided to seemingly entirely give up on it or, or, or the people that matter most rather within, you know, the situation and governing how we go about the situation have decided that, it isn't something that we need to worry about, which is really unfortunate because here in Florida and across sort of what they call the Sun Belt in the United States, you know, cases are on the rise at, at, at a ridiculous rate, over 10,000 new cases a day. Um, and it's sort of, again, as we find many issues in our society dictated entirely by means, you know, if you are someone that has the capacity to, uh, uh, you know, avoid going outside and avoid other people, then you don't see it as much of an issue. If you're someone that doesn't have that opportunity or those opportunities to stay inside as much, then you unfortunately are at risk and the people that are meant yeah. to be protecting you uh, are asleep at the wheel. So it's an unfortunate thing. And, it, and it's, it's, it's really difficult to sort of, uh, deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm trying to do my part to, to be responsible as I would encourage everyone um, to do so no matter where you are. But uh, yeah, it's it's really, it's just as bad as it, I think, can possibly be. Uh, yeah, and it is, is clearly a very different situation from the way that we feel it is in the UK at the moment. Though I was having a conversation earlier with a good, uh, very good friend of mine and his uh, fiance, and that we were talking about how in the UK there are still deaths, but uh, the strange thing is less people are uh, dying or contracting of it because um, most of the people who could uh, die from it or contract it have died and <laughs> indeed contracted it. Um, so that, that's sort of the sad side. That's why the numbers almost seem lower rather than, um, you know, an actual better uh, dealing with it than, than anyone else. How are things in, in London, just as a curiosity? Uh, I think there's a lot less fear right now. Uh, around um, you know you can walk around the streets and you'll see a lot of people without masks on um, you know there's a bit of mistrust over how easily corona spreads possibly and a lot of people probably know about the severity of it but I'd imagine it's one of those things where it feels far off and so you don't necessarily know you know because you don't, I don't actually know I haven't met many people who have been within direct contact of it and you know touch wood I am you know lucky to have that um, so that that's part of it. I think it feels very distant for a lot of Londoners. Uh, whereas for other people, you know, if you know someone who works regularly at a hospital or you know someone who works within the system, then you'll be like, right, okay, yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm also unlucky. Uh, or people near me are also unlucky enough to be particularly vulnerable to it. So I'm also very, whilst I feel lucky not to have brushed it so far, touch wood, um, I also really fear it because I worry that if it did brush me, then it would have like the ultimate consequence, which is which is horrific. Yep. Um, so yeah overall I think a lot of people feel very conflicted by it uh, which brings us on perfectly to our first <laughs> subject um, welcome Kristen to FFP this is what it was set out to be this is what it, it is now uh, we pretty much all flagged this when it first came into play and a few people got including me got very excited when we tried to pin it on Manchester City um, sorry that, that was a bad um, 
transition, but I'm going to stick with it. Um, Chris, Man City have basically said, technically, we didn't do anything wrong in the last five years. <laughs> yeah, and, and Guardiola said he feels vindicated and, and this is a good thing. Understandably, his rivals have said the opposite. I think Klopp said it was a bad day for football. Um, I, I, actually, Chris, I think, I think he actually said... I don't think it was a good day for football. Sorry, my apologies. I don't think it was a <laughs> yeah, good day bad. for football. Yeah. Um, no, it's important to quote accurately. But I think... I just think when I read so much of this stuff, there was some insider information about the players not wanting to leave, how Guardiola was, was vindicated. It all feels like we're just reading very different PR copy from these separate angles and I, and I don't feel like I have a true grasp on, on what is accurate. Um, and that saddens me a little bit because I think from what I read yesterday, this wasn't in many instances, a case of the statute of limitations had run out on some aspects. And you know what the truth is? I think as much as I would focus on Man City and whether they're a victim or a perpetrator or whatever, it's the clubs that have adhered to FFP quite religiously that I feel sorry for. I feel sorry for Roma. I feel sorry for Ruben Kazan, who, again, not only were warned or threatened with these rules, but then very quickly and very aggressively turned ship and had to sell players or restructure the club to adhere to these rules. And didn't have the rules. finances to just lawyer up, bitch. Yeah, I, th I think that's the problem, what we're witnessing, whether you think City are guilty or innocent. That's not the issue, I think, personally. I think the issue is we're seeing again that we've got such a clear and defined set of elite clubs that I don't think will ever sink below a certain point in terms of their size, their scope, and their resources. Or their morality. <laughs> that, <laughs> that I think it will make any new entrant very difficult. We're all kind of holding Atalanta up as this maybe team in the Champions League this season. But is that sustainable? Ajax weren't sustainable when they did it, you know, the other season and got to the semi-finals. I just worry that this situation, it's going to, or FFP more specifically, sorry, in the future is going to be defined by your legal team and not by how you actually acted. Well, that, that actually does bring on an interesting question. Does the legal defense of Man City actually count towards FFP? Does anyone know that? Because d does the club pay for the legal defense or would that be paid for separately by the owners? And if you can afford to lawyer up with an incredible law firm, say you pay, you know, retainer, um, does that come out of the club finances? I, don't, I mean, I'd be interested to know. I don't know whether what counts as inside and outside of club finances. And I know that neither of you know the answer. So I'm actually just asking a rhetorical uh, question that no one will ever find the answer to. Um, but as a, as a Man City fan, uh, Nico, it's, it must be a bit of a conflicting time for you because very much like uh, when you learn that your parents are fallible, you've learned that your owner, or maybe you already knew, um, your owners are fallible. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is this particular moment that I would describe as necessarily difficult. I mean, this is a this is a question and a sort of a situation that Manchester City fans, you know, the 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 across the globe have had to regard for some time now, and it's mm -hmm. it's something that I think um, it's it's difficult to reconcile. I think modern football with the systems that allow modern football to be. 
right? Like what when I watch Guardiola's statement regarding the decision and how he feels vindicated, as Chris talked about there, um, I think you have the separation that uh, an entity that owns Manchester City wants people to consume, which is the separation of what the idea of Manchester City is and what allows Manchester City to be. I think you have a group of people at City Football Group in Manchester that work very hard towards a goal and have, you know, ambitions and, and sort of the moral physics of, of, of a worthwhile worthwhile and redeemable thing. You have people doing good work in football. You have players working hard. Yeah, sure. Whatever the case is, like you have people doing good things within, within a a bounds that is acceptable to the rest of us, but that doesn't cancel out the means with which the club have become that thing, which is through the oil money of a, of a country and a regime that is, uh, you know, is in question. And I mean, that, that's part of it. Um, Sorry to cut you off very quickly there. I I kind of, I see where you're going with this, but I also, um, I guess what those, the the argument I've heard from a lot of people is, look, everyone is flawed uh, in some way within the game. And actually they had to make up the gap somehow because there was incredible inequality because previously when there was no FFP and we didn't think about finances in the 1960s, in the 1970s, in the 1980s, people could pour in the millions, well, not millions, but you get what I'm saying, the equivalence of millions in terms of a, you know, an index um, that they wanted unchecked. And people had decades and decades of spending or unfair investment or, you know, times to be able to give people backhanders and unchecked advantages and now we're just doing the same, but in the modern age. Yeah, I think that, like Chris was talking about there, you have, it's difficult to see how nowadays a club could, through the means of the game, through the means of performance, through, you know, on-pitch achievements, become, like, get to the level of a, of a club like Manchester City or Real Madrid or, or whatever the case may be. So you see the clubs that do enjoy those positions, you know, some of the ones that I just mentioned, and they're largely built off of a history of success that happened at the right time, more so, and they were able to sort of financially double down on that and make themselves into a global marketable entity. Manchester City skipped that by, you know, uh, taking some history and then pouring a lot of money into it and trying to equal out financially. And that's kind of the nature of the modern game. I don't I wouldn't offer the, uh, that up as an excuse to say, listen, uh, everything that Manchester City have done financially is excusable because no one is fallible. But it is it does offer us into insight into something that we talk a lot a lot about on so, this podcast, which is like the moral quandary of modern football, which is like, so, is any right. fandom redeemable? That doesn't I, make Manchester City redeemable or better than anyone else, but it is to say like this thing that used to be ours is no longer ours. It's somebody else's. The clientele has changed. And that is partly almost what Man City were arguing and partly what they held over UEFA, who, I I mean, we can talk about the uh, legal details, Chris, here, can't we? And we can talk about how maybe UEFA were flawed in the way they presented some of the evidence. Maybe they were flawed in the way that they acquired some of the evidence. But also partly what Man City threatened and partly what Man City used was, look, we're not the only ones who do this here. There is a corrupt system throughout UEFA as far as they are laying out as their argument. This is what I'm saying is partly their argument privately and also partially what they threatened with publicly. That um, they were basically going, well, come on, Bayern Munich do this. (laughs) 
can't you see what Barcelona are doing? <laughs> can't you see what Juventus are doing? Can't you see what blah, blah, blah are doing? And they were pretty much saying, look, there is too much, uh, to use a, a great phrase at the moment, entanglement going on at the moment within UEFA. And we are just taking part in that. Why are you singling us out? We will out everyone. Yeah, I I appreciate that. I've never fully bought into the idea that just because of the people are doing something wrong that you are allowed to do it as well. Mm-hmm. And I think, like I, like I said before, I, I don't think my argument is going to evolve much past the fact that you need everyone to buy into this FFP for it to work. I, 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 I've said before, I don't think it was this moralistic crusade to make football fair as the name suggests. I think in some instances it was just about UEFA handing off responsibility a little bit and being able to protect itself from these clubs busting and causing more trouble for them. I think by the same token, that doesn't mean it can't have some power for positive change. And that's why I think when you have clubs like Liverpool, who I think have said numerous times, a lot of their model is based on adhering to FFP and using it as a structure for them to financially operate. Mm-hmm. Me, what, weeks after or, or even a month or two, I've lost all concept of time, that we see them pull out of a potential deal for Timo Werner due to financial yeah. concerns, this decision then comes down. And, and I think that's the problem, is that we're going to get to the stage where we will almost have these clubs in respective leagues because we do see a, a pretty strong dominance of a select few teams domestically in each major European country where the peaks and troughs for those teams will become so much narrower than they are now, where we kind of see it to a certain degree now. Missing out on the Champions League is seen as an egregious scandal for these clubs. It makes me want to kick the air. And it's <laughs> it's just... I just worry that we've already gone so far down a path. Each moment like this is an opportunity to stop and say, look, this is a chance to turn around. This is a chance to do something different. And we just don't seem to want to do that as a sport. Now, I appreciate there will probably well, be that, Man City that, fans yeah. listening who think this is a Newcastle fan talking because he wants to win something or he's not seen his team do anything. He right. wouldn't say that if it, if it was him in this position. Maybe. I, I don't know. I've never been in that could, position. Could, but, we'll never be I, in but that I guess, position. I guess, that's, I guess that's the question. That is partly because you are on the... And Nico, I'll come back to you in a second because I think you're making some really valid points. Um, and I also understand the scattergun approach with which I approach things that Adam Boltwood doesn't. Um, Chris, you're on the precipice of falling into uh, your badge and your club, meaning something completely different to what it did, possibly even 20 minutes before a contract was signed. Mm-hmm. So... In it, there is a quite literal change in the whole identity of your club within one signature on a contract. It metaphorically, probably literally as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can and I guess over that, um, what I'm saying is, how can you keep as a fan any form of consistent identity and uh, identification with your club if one minute you guys represent one thing? And the next minute, you guys represent something different, but it's all under the same badge, the same ethos, the same uh, whatever it was that, you know, Bobby Robson represented, Alan Shearer represented to you growing up, even going further back than that. I think that's the inherent risk of of that type of, dare I say, financial doping kind of. You, you, 
you do rocket away from what you once were. Um, and that's the idea is that it's seen as an opportunity to overhaul a club in a drastic way to put them towards that elite. And when it's not done in a way that feels, I guess, organic, that's the thing. Fo- football is such a principled sport to the point where it seems suffocatingly pretentious. So, so then let me ask you this, Christian. Football globally feels like such a suffocating sport mm-hmm. or the system of football within Europe, which UEFA has now come to embody and partly FIFA because of their basing in Europe, but obviously they've exploited this globally, now represents that. Mm-hmm. Do you believe is the problem that they have also attached themselves in a similar way to the way that Man City's owners have attached themselves to what Man City seemingly represent Liverpool, uh, you know, <laughs> furloughed people, but also said, let's think about what Bill Shankly would do in this situation. Like, it, there is so much, uh, there's so many empty gestures in many ways. And uh, I'm, I'm not trying to offend anyone by saying that. You know, I, I think Liverpool can still represent that, but I do think you can also call out hypocrisy where mm-hmm. it is. Do you think that there is that issue as well, where we are now just basically seeing these are vessels uh, to further people's financial gain rather than actually representing what we want them to represent? Unfortunately, I think, yeah, I don't think that's a, a recent change either. I think no, the problem we have, we had in, or the problem we have now compared to the past was that the people in charge of football clubs I think saw themselves as custodians of sorts, people that were there to carry on because football never stops. It will continue long after we're gone. Thank you, Copper 90. And, and <laughs> for that reason, it means that any sort of sense of ownership is only temporary. Whereas at the moment, I think it feels like for a lot of these clubs it's almost like they're being operated like a puppet a little bit. Right, and I or think, a, as a facade. And I think that change from being, if you will, sort of a, a stately home with a caretaker to a, a puppet with a puppeteer, it's quite drastic, it's quite concerning, because ultimately, as we've seen with just nearby neighbours Bury and teams that have gone the other way on that financial spectrum, these are community hubs as well. This is this is a place for, you know, certain supporters in their seventies and eighties to to get out of the house once a week. It it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think when you just resign control like that, there is an inherent risk of they can do whatever they want with it realistically. Because we've seen the Premier League won't just take control of a club like that. They may force through a sale quickly, like they did with Man City when Tax and Shinaratu was in charge and there were concerns there. But I think if I've looked at the EFL test and a number of the teams down there, there is a growing concern I have with just how little structure and ring fencing there is to who will own these clubs, what they will do with them, and what potential solutions there are if they decide to take them into dangerous areas. Then to go, because Nico, I guess I've, I've skipped a couple of things here. I kind of know the conversation that every other podcast is having right now, which is, um, basically, you know, let's break down what happened exactly in this and then we'll all come to some sort of morally outraged agreement that football is fucked in some way. But ultimately, we all love it. Now, back to the ads. It's like, you know, uh, that's that's where, you know, Muddy Knees Media and those kind of guys are going with this because ultimately we're all having a wry take on the modern game, aren't we? Um, and like, 
what I'll come to you and say then, I know you've explored this subject a number of times. I know that ultimately a lot of the time uh, it's quite a nihilistic uh, or um, not nihilistic. I'm not saying we shall die, but, um, <laughs> you know, quite a dark outcome that we come to, which is a little bit like, well, the horse has bolted here. Uh, and, but sadly, we're all invested in this. Well, but I don't think the outcome is, is dark. To be quite honest with you, what do you think the outcome is then? Because, because in my mind, because I think, where I'm going I think with he, my conclusion is 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 basically uh, there has to be some form of reform. Is it also that we begin to build away from organisations like UEFA? We begin to build away from organisations that I've built an affinity with, like my own club, like the Premier League down the years, or does it go the other way where I lean into it? I mean, I really don't know as as far as the, you know the solution goes, but I think there is hope and there is a, a brightness to understanding the situation as it truly exists, or as well as we can come to that that understanding. What and do you believe that truth is then? I, in, I think that, that truth is the is that we've seen it like like I was talking about sort of with you guys pre recording about like how George Orwell, uh, Callum Rice Coates wrote a really good piece about George Orwell and his dislike of football. And this was, mm -hmm. you know, before, right after the war. And the reason, essentially the reason Orwell didn't like football is because he believed that it served as sort of a means of like tribal, like miming tribalistic violence. And in many cases, and Callum gave one specific example, like Dynamo, uh, Dynamo Kiev or a, or a Russian team came over um, to play a bunch of English teams. Kiev's in Ukraine, a, but fair play to you. Either way. Yeah, my geography's not great. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, they came over as sort of um, a, uh, a political statement against the capitalists. It was essentially, you know, Stalin's communistic beliefs uh, in sport versus, you know, a Western capitalized idea. Could have been Kiev then, yeah, fair play. And, and, and it, it served that purpose at the time. And that's... That's an element. It's different, but that's an element of what we're experiencing now, which is what you mentioned, which is clubs, systems that like communal hubs that belong to people as a puppet for something greater than themselves as the state or an ideology or whatever the case is. We're experiencing something a little bit different now with regards to advertisers using clubs as puppets for their message or their political message, even in the case of Manchester City and, you know, whatever the case may be. But there is uh, a brightness in, in understanding that and saying, listen, we understand that no matter the, the conditions, our clubs, the things that belong to us as geographical like inputs of where we are and geographical uh, emblems of our community can be mm -hmm. taken away from us. We have to be wary of that. How we Were they ever ours is the question. Sorry? Were they ever ours is, is a wider question. I think they can be. I think they're without it's it's susceptible no matter what whether it be the state or advertisers or companies or whatever but it it can belong to people what we have to ensure and what would change the game inextricably is taking that thing away from the advertisers and away from people that otherwise otherwise might want to uh, misrepresent it in a specific way. And I think in that case, you remove a lot of the disparity in football. Like what we're talking about here with these super clubs and, and you know, Manchester United, for example, have been bad for X amount of years now, but the badness has led to, yes, some finishes outside of the Champions League places, but they're still making a ton of money. They still have some of the best players in the world. They still, you know, they still, th their margin of success and failure is very different than to a club like Newcastle. So, you eliminate that disparity and you make football more equitable when it doesn't belong to people that are able to make that disparity so significant. No one would be able to amalgamate the squads of players that exist now if football was not financially doped as it is. So I think the conclusion of all that is to say, 
no matter what, institutions that belong to groups of people can be uh, can be taken from them. We're wary of that, and we understand that in both senses of generally how it can be taken, whether by the state or whether by private industry. There's there's hope in saying now that we're wary of that, we as fans who have power have the ability to take that back and change football for the better. But it is on us to do that. Because that is partly the transformation that, uh, I mean, you know, I, I think the NBA and the NFL have got very different understandings of their own sports. But it is a bit of a transformation that we've seen both of those sports go through. Now, granted, those guys also exist somewhat within a different bubble to what football exists in because they are both, whilst they call themselves, you know, world champions, national sports rather than international sports in the same way as football is pan-European um, or even, you know, cult globally. Um, that, I guess that is, that's another question to ask, isn't it? Is, is it, is it possible, especially, I think, especially the problem being that in a country like England, we are, you know, we were the ones who were most morally outraged by Luis Suarez's handball for some strange reason, because we feel ourselves to be moral arbiters of the game, the people who must in some way uphold what is going on. Um, and maybe that is also a bit of a relic of what is currently being deconstructed in society right now. And so there is a deconstruction of the reason that some of these people feel like they should be outraged at the same time as, oh, actually, maybe we should be outraged. So I guess a lot of people are feeling very confused and conflicted right now, Chris, that whilst... Um, you know, the Brits came up with the game. We took it global and it was awfully good that we could take a football round and kick it around with some of the natives. Um, you know, it, it, we are no longer uh, those people who can afford to be morally outraged, et cetera, et cetera. Because in many ways, we've, done, we've put ourselves in this bed. Now it's time for us to lay in it. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's a brilliant answer. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I realise I probably gave the answer that I was looking for there. Rather, um, do you, then I guess yeah, to, to follow up that, on that kind of 1984 uh, George Orwell theme, I understand he wrote more books than that, though I can't name any. Of them. <laughs> um, the best of George Orwell. Yeah, the, yeah, I've got the very best of George Orwell is one of my favourite books of his. Um, <laughs> do Do you think, Chris, that we are? Uh, because I, I was sort of struck with the story that Nico told then about, uh, you know bringing a, a Stalinist team over, it felt very much like a compromise of, okay, well, this represents the rich man, but the poor people or the people who are normal still get to watch it in some way. And our experiences, those people, wasn't really changed because we were watching football. We were watching good football. There didn't really seem like there was much of a, uh, a compromise there. But now it is beginning to compromise us because stadiums are beginning, beginning to come a bit sanitized in that sense stadiums and fan experience is changing because of the corporate nature of football now once it starts to have a go at that visceral element of football are we really kicking back for other reasons then like are we going look the fabric of the game is changing even if the facade you know because the facade is leaking through i think for a long time maybe we convinced ourselves and this is going i'm talking about decades and decades ago that football and let's say outside influences, politics, things like that, the relationship was more oil and water. Whereas I think now it, it's more ink and water. And so maybe right. we can't always see it. Maybe it's not always obvious, 
but I think if if you choose to, I guess, turn an eye to it, it, it does become more obvious, whether it's, you know, Gazprom and people joking about, I wonder what that tastes like and things like that. <laughs> God, I've made that joke so many times. Yeah, the, the um, my dad asked me once if I'd ever tried it. Um, bless him. But a nice cool glass of Gazprom. It, that's the kind of thing is that, it's how you respond to it as well, because you know we make jokes. There is there something more concerning for us to to take from it? Is there something else we should be doing about it? I think as as I look through the lens of the Premier League, because if I'm honest, I don't know the rest of the leagues forensically enough. Unfortunately, the horse has very much bolted as it relates to outside influence on the Premier League, and and in a lot of ways, the globalization of the Premier League was wonderful because it brought us. The likes of Rude Hullet, Viali, Zola in those early Richard years. Richard Keys. <laughs> um, and, and it really did, I think, open, at least as I speak from my own experience, open me up to different cultures, different countries, ideas, all these kind of things. It gave me a much greater impression of the globe as a whole, um, whether it was just learning about countries and, and things like that. I think where that same influence has been i would argue less beneficial is that this there has not been a tremendous vetting process on those who wish to influence the game at a higher level and how beneficial they could be relative to the money they have i think too often the money has come first and i think it still is now um as we've discussed at length with the saudi arabia takeover the pif involvement and saudi arabia's human rights record and that's why I say that I feel like the relationship has become more water and ink because in the same breath as I see people say, this is not good, this is a bad idea, I hear the counterpoint of, well, the British government see benefit in doing arms deals with Saudi Arabia. They do other deals with Saudi Arabia. So why can't they own a football club? And I think it, it's it's there's a truth in the idea that, yes, football clubs are more romantic and it's you have to protect them in that way. But I think actually the more accurate statement would be exactly. And that's the problem is that in this quest for, as I see it, albeit on a very superficial level, money, we have been willing to shed a lot of our previous concerns about football and and how sacred it is. I think it stopped being sacred in that sense a long time ago. That's not to say that there aren't sprouts of that in some places, but if we're talking about the very top level, I think the things that we cherish about the game and what we come to really hold close now more than ever are because it's a good distraction from a lot of the bad stuff that goes on and a lot of the questionable individuals that involve themselves in this game, whether it be for as simple as they love football and they want to have the adulation of seeing their team that they've bought lift a trophy or they wish to run some kind of PR exercise and attach their name to, isn't this sporting institution wonderful? Nico, you wanted to say something then? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with a lot of what Chris is saying there, and I think at the same time, it's not necessarily the quest for money and the quest for money in football and, like, what that means. I wouldn't even say that's inherent to, like, attaining more money per se, but if you watch a film like There Will Be Blood, for example, um you know, it is about sort of manifest destiny and capitalism in the West and how it's inherent to this country and 
you know, it's specific to like oil and how it transforms society and how it transforms society. Like that, that embrace of modern industrial capitalism, like you lose when, when the definitive term of constructing something becomes something as fungible as monetary, uh, as, as, as something monetary, then you lose the ability to abide by things that are moral or ethical ideals. We used to live before, you know, this advent in a society that prioritized those kinds of values over the, uh, yeah. that, or that used to materially define itself by those kinds of values. When everything is then susceptible to be changed by the presentation of money, then those values become as interchangeable as the dollars which, themselves. Which is why then, I, I, I guess I was going to come to this question anyway, but Kalduna Mubarak, um, I hope I get his name right. I don't want to upset him, although I get the feeling the following sentence might. Um, <laughs> it, it, basically, I'm a little bit bored of his PR exercise interviews that Man City do drop to the Manchester Evening News and then the Manchester Evening News could continue to suck him off for the next two days <laughs> whilst he basically says, uh, listen, like we've been vindicated here. It's like oh, oh, that vindication involves paying 10 million euros to someone. I'm not quite sure when the last innocent team or team that did completely nothing uh, somehow ended up paying money to um, the people that were accusing them of wrongdoing. But maybe I, uh, maybe I've got it twisted here, Nick, Nick or Chris, and maybe you, either of you, can tell me why would a club that was completely innocent of doing anything pay ten million euros to someone when they were the innocent body? I don't, I don't, I don't think they would. But I think, I think there's also but they were completely vindicated. I think you'll understand from his uh, speaking, Nico. <laughs> this man, this man, basically made out as if really this, these guys were the Robin Hood of the Premier well, League. Again, and that, in many that's, ways, that's, this was an attack on the society that we live in now as Brits. That is, that is the rhetoric that they position these 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 specific issues with to again separate the idea of Manchester City which is a group of people in Manchester working towards a goal of being a good football team from mm -hmm. the thing that allows that thing to exist i think also within this conversation there's a nuanced element of it to have to say it's one thing for us and this is something that chris mentioned before it's one thing for us to look at the thing our object of desire our object of affection in football and say no 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 we will not allow this thing to become morally tainted by this uh, dirty money that exists in in you know the in the middle east but then have the rest of our society entirely inculcated in the systems of practice that we're pushing against and we don't want as a part of football the entirety right. so of society is 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 tarnished by this thing but let's right. make it clear it's not inherent to to another place and it's right. not different than this other thing. It's just that it's optics. So if Tre yeah, so again, treating again, football that's as why the bastion is actually damaging in that sense. One hundred percent. But it's football, but we'll let them take the arms. Exactly. And it's and it's again. There's an element. I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel in saying if we look at the situation for what it is and start to reject this thing in football, and we are successful at rejecting it in football, that offers a pathway for us to reject it in other elements of our life. So it has to start right. somewhere. There is an element of nihilism and you're right in saying that, you know, the horse is gone. There's nothing we can do about this now. We've we've made our bed. We now have to lay in it. But there's also an element of saying this is where it stops. And then we can go go make better change, uh, you know, from this point. 
Right. So then, Chris, to flip it back, and I, I've got to admit, whilst I am not particularly taken with what uh, Khaldun is saying very often, I have respect for a man who's building an incredibly interesting project with an incredibly talented set of people. And it's, you know, it's fair to say that if this was Apple or Tesla or uh, any other innovative company globally where people don't seem to worry about the level of investment, people are going, God, what a project. You know, they've got the Johnny Ive of football in there or, you know, the Steve Jobs of football in there. that is Pep Guardiola. They're building something that is incredibly attractive. It's an incredibly attractive product. It's something that everyone would love to be a part of. Uh, and if we weren't so tribal, we would love to uh, have a manager like Pep Guardiola. We'd love for our team to play this kind of football. We'd love to fall in love with Raheem Sterling, uh, someone who represents everything that seems to be good about young uh, English football players at this point. Um, is this, uh, the up and down of it, just a veiled, um, bigoted attack from uh, an outmoded uh, behemoth that is UEFA, who now seems to protect other clubs, which, let's face it, are run by you know rich white guys, such as Bayern Munich, um, uh, but it, because these guys are from another country, we go, well, we don't like that they're coming in and changing the game. Um, no, I don't think it is. And I think in fairness, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't UEFA that was on trial. I don't think, I think that was the problem is that as, as I think Nico said earlier on that no one is, is perfect. No one, in fact, it was yourself, sorry. No one is free of flaw, yep. but that doesn't really hold water when it's Man City who are being scrutinised for their um, adherence to FFP. So I, I think what concerns me about this is something you touched on before, which is Stu Brennan, without wishing to scapegoat people, um, is a, a journalist for the Manchester Evening News that seems so in line with uh -oh. what the club thinks that it stops becoming journalism at journalism. its core. That, it's, that, it's it's mimicking, it's parroting, basically. Yeah, you are it, you are part of the puppetry at that point. Right, writing op eds that are essentially what the what the club would say if if they could or if they felt like it. That, <laughs> Don't they call them press releases now, Chris? Yeah, that that's not good. That that to me is very concerning. And but that, and that's it, and that's part of it. Like that that's an essential part of it. Like you're saying, like there there are op eds that are. Uh, happening and being published by supposedly independent entities and like we i've i've referenced not to cut you off there but i think it's such an interesting view uh it's such an interesting part of it because all of these things they work so similarly and the example that i mentioned before with like stalin wanting a team to win to send a message that would inform a political decision or whatever the case was is the same thing that happened here when you know the the CIA had a deal with uh, Sports Illustrated when ar around the time that uh, Hungarians defected from the USSR and the, you know they wanted to put a positive spin on things and 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 you know they they wanted there was an essential part of that project that the CIA had with the CIA had with Sports Illustrated that says if we say something then it will go down a certain way with the audience as a whole if an independent citizen or an independent group of citizens at sports illustrated say that say, say the thing that we want then it comes off differently so it's all part of how these messages are like amalgamated and said and understood by the public and it's 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 an interesting part of it Sadly, it's also quite a crude uh, set of apparatus, really, isn't it, Chris? And it's, it's in many ways, I'm not trying to compare what Man City is doing to the presidency in America right now, but it's very much, uh, look, if you want the inside line here, 
then, and you know, you want to be one of the guys in the press conference who gets your question answered, then why don't you say what I need you to? Um, and it's flexing the power a little bit. It's, it's a sense of um, like uh, very much like Nico was saying a few weeks ago, it's soft power um, in the way that we kind of saw with brands before it was like, Hey, if you can say something about our player, when the boot comes out, we'll give you access to that player. But well, it's, it's kind, of, it's kind of disgusting now because it, it doesn't really work anymore. And that is my concern for the relationship between media and football clubs now, at least on a local right. level, is that, you know, what, it's, it's different if you're a rights holder and you're paying for that money. But when your access is, is purely on a handshake agreement like that and can be withdrawn at any point, we, we saw it with a hole in the whole Daily Mail. Um, if you're seen as troublemaking in the eyes of the club, then they will revoke right. access quickly. And I think for local institutions like the Manchester Evening News, as an example, it's a big concern that that individual feels the need to operate that way. And no one above him sees the need to, to question it or say, hang on, this, this doesn't read right to me or, or of the same opinion themselves. I think that's, that's the problem. And to be fair, I, I don't just want to, throw that on the doorstep of, of local newspapers. I mean, I have no. my own history with, with some of them in Newcastle, which is not great, but I it's think... It's well chronicled, should we say that? Nice. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you, Chris, I think, like, not to put you, if you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to, but, like, you have told me a story about, like, the difficult questions that you asked in a situation in a newsroom and the social position that you had accumulated up until that point with people in the media and people in that area and the response that you received was a little mixed. Yeah. I'll, I'll be really frank about it. I don't have many friends in that press room in Newcastle. Um, Any more or did you at, at one point and then it changed because you were trying to make, you were, you were basically trying to uh, keep integrity. I, th I think, I think what happened was they weren't super fond of me to begin with because I was young and a newcomer and as a digital writer threatened that position in their eyes. I didn't think I did, but, but he's using a I laptop. Um, <laughs> Good God. And then, you know, funny enough, I think a combination of being 23, a little bit anxiety ridden. I didn't make the effort to say hello to them and they didn't extend it the other way. So we got off to right. a bad start. And then the questions I asked to be truthful, they weren't, you know, tell me about the Watergate scandal at Newcastle United. They were just, <laughs> tactical things they were just things that weren't tell me about the red card that must have upset you or the penalty must have delighted you it was you weren't looking for quotes basically yeah they weren't because i to me it felt like they were padding out reports a bit and i thought well that's not really what we're here for we're supposed to ask questions either that supporters would like to hear or that give us a greater insight into your decisions and why you made them um and i don't think did the penalty annoy you or delight you is, is really doing that. And look, I've, I've felt some kind of ramification to that, to the point where when Miguel Almiron joined Newcastle United, the local paper didn't ask me a single thing. And even though I had written a piece for their sister company, they didn't use it. Even when I put it on the doorstep and said, look, I've written this already. You can use it. They weren't interested. So I try when I discuss these things to be as, objective as possible um i don't think it bodes well when it when a newspaper has that close a relationship i appreciate there are human elements in the middle that you work with these people 
press offices and the like on such a regular basis that you are going to develop relationships and friendships. But I don't think that should stop you being able to call each other out in the same way that if Nico took a very questionable sponsorship deal tomorrow, I would say <laughs> that doesn't really feel like you. That, that feels a little bit off center for what I've come to understand is what you represent. And I think it's that honesty that keeps relationships, I think, pure, ultimately. I think it's so, so, what keeps them right. long-lasting and sustained. Um, and, but sadly, the, the assumption is the other way, that if you take less risks, then you will risk less in the relationship. Mm-hmm. And therefore, right, which is very similar to business because it's like, well, we don't want to risk too much here because there's cash at stake. Um, and, and I think ultimately, Chris is kind of making a good point here, Nico, that sort of goes back to um, goes back to where, sort of where I'm looking at here, where it's like, well, this is, hey, buddy, this is kind of the way of the world. And it, it, why are we naive in, uh, or we, uh, I guess, uh, sorry, not why are we naive, but are we naive in thinking that in some way football it wouldn't end up tainted by this? Football wouldn't end up as part of this? And actually, uh, has football always really been a part of this? Yeah, I think um, I think there's yeah. an element of that that last part there, which is like we think that it was once pure, and like we have various examples that it wasn't. It's always it always has the potential to be something that it isn't. It always has the potential to be a vehicle for somebody else that we're not, <laughs> that we're just not beholden to. That's always an aspect of it, and but I think. Then, go ahead. So just just to add to that, then Nika. I mean, I guess the best way I can put the point I'm, I want you to explore is. Um, Football is a really great analogous way for analyzing the world, right? Um, And very often we'll end up putting, you know, uh, a lot of analogies from football onto real life and vice versa. Is it kind of good that this stuff is playing out here? Because otherwise, maybe we wouldn't have even identified some of these structures in the real world on such a mass level as we are now. And we wouldn't even be exploring the idea that rich guys can come along and... um, you know, hijack something or, you know, because normally, let's be honest, uh, in any other, in a lot of other industries where there isn't any competition, we don't necessarily have, you know, um, uh, emotional investment in something. We sort of go, that guy's an innovator. He's investing money. This can only be good. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it can. But at the same time, I, I don't think it's it's necessarily given like the investigation that we have about sport and about football just because it's something that we care about can be given because I think a lot of the time, especially here in like the United States and the sports model that exists here and even Americans fandom, like accepted American fandom of British football teams, specifically Premier League ones is one that's largely sterilized. It's largely something that is just seen. And again, this is, it goes back to the conversation like about tribalism and what, football stands for like football is changing because of the like because of how it exists and there's always you know these conversations that people are having about players needing to stay at one club and the impossibility of that nowadays and and all these things and i think football has shifted because again it's shifted away from the people that initially conceived of it to people that (laughs) that sponsor it in a very different way it has gone from being a tribal element a representation of who you are and your identity as a a person in the world based on geographical location to something that you can identify with a little bit differently and and identify with um, based off of other criteria and so when that changes 
the perception and engagement with it changes at a fundamental level. But it's easier for those companies and those people that are controlling the systems of like production to engage with it in its original format. And I think like when someone is, you know, we talk about about Arsenal fan TV and we talk about these things like when someone is like outraged and 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 experiences a a catharsis through their football club that's the way that a company would want somebody to engage with it because it's entirely sterilized there's no anger at the ownership there's no anger at the sponsors there's just violence contained within the sport of the game whereas now like you see a lot of kids that are not fans of teams and that's fine you see kids that are fans of players or people engaging with the sport as a whole at a tactical or analytical level. So that changes it. People care less about the badge and the club because that doesn't hold as much value. They engage with the sport and the things that it perpetuates. So you have this battle of like the traditional identification of football and what that used to mean and what it perpetuates now, whether it wants to or not. So it's a very it's a it's to it's a long winded way of answering your question. I'm enjoying but, it, but <laughs> but it's not given. There are people that are always saying keep sports and politics separate, keep sports and life separate. It doesn't exist that way. It never did. But we it's have to be active in our engagement with it to tackle the problems that emanate from it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right, I get that. And is that, um, I guess also there is no, and this is part of it, we are, we've come to expect that a one size fits all sort of uh, rule in the same way as we've, we've for some weird reason, put on VAR, but now we're realizing with VAR, uh, <laughs> that it's you know, terrible. every situation is not only, well, not only is VAR terrible because we're trying to apply some sort of blanket rule across extremely unique situations every time we look at VAR because for some weird reason, we're able to pick out more detail in post and actually, you know, strange. Um, you know, we're, we're actually finding out that every situation is nuanced, uh, Chris. And so for some weird reason, not everyone, and we also can't fit the wider world into one box uh, of these people are owners, these people are fans, these people are players. There's now a bit of a mulch of everything, and maybe we're just uh, really coming up, becoming wise to our own naivety rather than uh, the world changing. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, with that said, 
uh, I uh, and I don't know if I've actually shone any light on anything there. Um, we we should now talk about um, a man who was a great of the game um, before it became cynical in this sense, uh, and someone who came from your neck of the woods, uh, Chris, passed away earlier this week. Uh, one of um, the the generation of footballers that really meant something to so many people in this country. Uh, it was Jack Charlton. Yeah, incredibly sad to to see Jackie Charlton pass away. Um, Ashington born, um, which is uh, is a place that I'm very familiar with. And I think, you know what, I could speak for probably 30, 40 minutes about the man and not really do his legacy justice. I think as a, as a human, he was a wonderful person. His family have, have detailed that. As a coach, as a footballer, he was tremendous. Um, and I think just hearing some of the stories is is a wonderful uh, opportunity to remember who he was and what he represented as someone that was a, a one club man that won the World Cup, that achieved so much just as a player and then went on to management and, you know, inspired a nation in, in the Republic of Ireland. Um, I, I just think he'll be greatly missed. He, he wasn't perhaps as prominent in public life in these latter years, Um but I just think whenever I got the opportunity to hear him speak, and I, and I did as a as a kid, I went to a, a sort of uh, after dinner event at St James's Park where he was speaking. He mm. just captured a room like I've not really seen in many people, um, and he had the whole place roaring. And I think for for that reason, among many others, it's terribly sad that he's he's left us. I mean, eighty five is a tremendous age to get to. Um, but yeah, I think he'll be greatly missed, and, and rightly so. Uh, um, uh, I mean, it, it does seem there are so many people in that part of the world um, who hold a lot of affection for um, him and also just that generation of footballers because he obviously was one of two great footballing brothers as well. Yeah, and, and you know what it is? I was trying to think about that before. How do you distill why someone was as loved as he as he was in, in the same way that Sir Bobby Robson was? And I think what it comes back to for me is that at least with Sir Bobby Robson, he sort of inspired me a little bit to look beyond where I could see um, because he did go abroad. He did work with these wonderful players and take himself out of his comfort zone. But I think a little bit like Jack Charlton who achieved so much and, and brought so much to the game and really had so much opportunity to be, self-obsessed and arrogant and think he was better than others. He never did. I think that humility sort of sat on his shoulders. And and that in itself is, I think, a lesson we can all really take from, from his life is that, you know, I think during the minor strike in the 80s, he would lend his car, he would help with food. He, he never forgot where he was raised and how he was raised, regardless of what he achieved. And I think... Mm that in itself to me is not only commendable, I think the humility attached to it is what is is what I will take away from his, his time on earth, on, as well as, again, a truly fantastic football mind, a very talented defender in a, in a period that I think we sometimes reduce football to kick and lump. He could play football, he absolutely could, despite his own evaluations that he wasn't that good at football and that Bobby was the better of the two. 
I think he could play football. And it, like I say, just a, a wonderful human being and someone that, um, even though I didn't know him personally, in a weird way, I will miss him quite considerably. Yeah, I think I think we've lost a lot of uh, sporting greats this year, um, uh, and definitely in the last twelve months. Um, let's 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 move on uh, to someone that is a brother meant a lot to uh, Manchester United. Uh, are they good, Nico? Because I mean, surely uh, Paul Pogba's passing is something that will never change. It will never change. It might not change Manchester United at its core, but it won't change. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think there was, um, you know, they've put together a string of performances that are that is admirable. But at the same time, what I noticed sort of in their recent what was going to be a win, but turned out to be a two-two draw with Southampton, was that it, it they are, you know, uh, very sorry. Just to, just with the nature of time, if it turned out to be a two-two draw, then we know it was never actually going to be a win. At one point, it might have been, but you know, yeah, you're right. I don't oh, know what okay. I was well, saying. There. Yeah, I mean, you, you're you are you're buying into the the loving that's going on with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. You're trying to say that <laughs> I am. I am very much. I am very much. I'm. 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 I'm admiring it because you know it's very fun for me to see that what I what I perceive it as is that he is. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is not good enough of a manager to make of the pieces that exist at Manchester United into something more than what they are now. But because of someone like Pogba, who has such tremendous ability, he doesn't have to to achieve the bare minimum to justify his position. Well, surely then, for, uh, my first argument to you is surely you should be building him up as a Man City fan as high as you think the motherfucker I would love to but I love the I love the front three audience so much that I decide to give my truthful and honest opinion right okay then I I at least think public the publicly facing on the podcast (laughs) sure there's only a couple of people that listen and we do uh, we appreciate the Zaldivar twins but outside of that I think it's important that you build Ole Gunnar Solskjaer up as high as possible so that ultimately the roller coaster that Manchester United fans are on would be as jerky. They're not going to get. They're not going to get off of it anyways. Possible. They're not going to get right. off of it anyways. They're not going right. to get off okay. of it anyways. So, so then, on the other side of that, then why is it that um, just because you and your poxy little stats say <laughs> that Manchester United aren't quite as good as people say, um, they can't be as good as people say because this team, Nika, I will remind you, <laughs> would be one point ahead of Liverpool. If the league had started in February, <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfectly reasonable way to uh, amalgamate and accumulate points and count them to to uh, to validate a perspective. But I think, again, like what I said there is that if you look at Liverpool or Manchester City or any other team that has consistent repeatable results is that they have a structured way of attacking right they have a structured way of moving the ball and positioning their players so that things happen with a degree of repeatability as much as we may not like it like everything comes down to an element of like scientific repeatability and that's what makes good teams good is that they understand how to score goals and they come to that understanding by being able to reproduce that in a variety of ways is that not also why Liverpool and Man City are both, when they have lost, have come unstuck? Because the repeatability uh, and the elements of that that they relied on uh, 
uh, were picked upon by a Napoli or uh, whoever it was that beat those sides. Yeah, and in some cases, like the, when you have a justifiable method and approach and that's discernible to somebody else, it can be exploited. Um, but when it's good enough and when it's backed by you know certain criteria of that, then it's repeatable and so on. Skill. But the... The difference for Manchester United is that I think if you look at most of the performances that people are referencing as evidence of like, this is what this team can be. It's not based off of something that is necessarily repeatable in terms of a structure. You just have Pogba or Bruno Fernandes or Anthony Martial or Mason Greenwood or... or, or You're mixing your accents now and that's what I, I love. You I know. For a I can't, I can't yeah. wait for the, for the comments. But it's down to those players doing something individually, which may in and of itself contain an aspect of repeatability but is something that at the highest level at the highest level of football is not enough to right. make a team good enough and so that's what that's what i find so much joy in is that i watch pogba be exceptional and i love seeing that individually but then i watch that exceptional nature cover up the shit that is Ole Gunnar right. Solskjaer's uh, strategy and i say this is wonderful <laughs> Right, because obviously you're enjoying the fact that some people are talking themselves into betting for Manchester United to be the league champions next yes. year. Um, yes, yes. But I mean, at the same time, Chris, this also falls into the, the in previous years, terrible reporting of what Manchester United really was because it mis- uh, sorry, misunderestimates, am I George Bush? Um, it, it, it underestimates the repeatability and the excellent coaching of what happened under Sir Alex, which ultimately Sir Alex kind of enjoyed painting the opposite of what Nico is painting right now. He enjoyed the idea that Manchester United was based on individual talent because that drew away from what was really going on at Manchester United, which was strong systems, very clear systems, um, et cetera, et cetera, which led Manchester United to where they were. Because in many ways, he didn't want the people to think that Manchester United had that element of... He wanted to think they were mercurial, magic, all these kind of things that his hero, Bill Shankly, had employed in Liverpool just 50 years previous. He did. And I, and I think the worry that I have cited with Manchester United, it, I wouldn't say it's so much rooted in the repeatability as they. I worry that they may look at the situation there and now and think, oh, we've got that next Sir Alex Ferguson without realising that... <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> well, not to the same level, but even we've got right. that figurehead again. We've got that person that can lead things. Without... Just to be clear, who are you saying that is? You're Solskjaer. definitely saying that's Paul Pogba. Sorry, I thought you meant it's Paul Pogba. My bad. Okay, sorry. As that sort of figurehead at the top without acknowledging that football just doesn't work that way anymore. You can't have one individual with their hand cast so wide like that. You really do need a team-led approach. And that's that's what we've seen at Liverpool. That's what we've seen at Manchester City, um, the, the two Premier League title winners of the last few seasons. Um, and I think if I can give them credit, from what I've seen of, of Manchester United of late, I think they've gained a greater control in their ability to to find the gear stick, if you will, between counter-attacking on teams, which I think they were always very good at, but then also knowing how to maybe lure teams out a little bit and sucker them into opening up spaces for them to exploit. Now, look, the defence is still not great. That goal they conceded against uh, Southampton in, in the last minute there was was pretty terrible. But that's where... Based on their two most expensive defenders. The, exactly. that. That's where I think you look at this team and say, like the, the comparison of Liverpool and Man City, it is a project, 
it's whether you are comfortable now giving Solskjaer potentially more control because they don't have a director of football at this point um, or potentially installing one and sticking with Solskjaer. It goes back to that repeatability element. Do you think that he will grow with this team and continue to build it? And is it as simple as with, let's say, trying to think, uh, Mikel Arteta at Arsenal. Is it as simple as the individuals here are not fit for purpose in many instances? Or is there more that he could actually excrete from the group that he's got at his disposal? And I think that's where they're at now in terms of trying to work out the um, where that line sits. And I guess that's that's a fascinating question, isn't it, uh, Nico? Because you know, to, to look at uh, either Liverpool or Man City, you see that both managers went through a number of years removing those elements from the squad, which they considered to be. Uh, individually great pieces uh, and Emery Chan uh, only really the Liverpool examples pop to the top of my head uh, but I'm sure that there were elements at Man City as well that Pep got Gail Clichy etc that you know he moved on Um, uh, but is it can it also work the other way around where we have now seen the individual brilliance of these players and when Manchester United come to the break then the coaching can really begin at that point and also I guess, how long can that run last? That It is possible that there is a run next season when Manchester United's individual brilliance of Paul Pogba, of Anthony Martial, of Greenwood, of all these things, just happens to fall into place each game. One game, Pogba's fantastic. The next game, Greenwood's fantastic. The next game, Maguire's particularly good and De Gea makes the saves. Are you saying that it, that's not repeatable uh, for a whole season? Or, you know, what's, what's, because what I'm wondering is here, uh, is it just the people who are calling Manchester United great now, who may be vindicated in 12 months' time, are they really making an educated... It's more of an educated guess than an actual prediction. Well, so is mine. Everybody is an educated right. guess. And, and you're right in saying, like, sometimes these things can bear out. Individual performances and individual players certainly have been successful in football before. Um, But at the same time, I think, and what provides a great example for this is the Tottenham versus Arsenal game, the North London Derby that happened um, recently in, in, in saying that, like, you know, even you shouldn't use single game XG. And that's why the, that is that the new thing. Uh, hopefully not, but it's um, an old thing. But sorry, the so uh, how many games of XG should I be using now? Well, expected goals. If anybody's unfamiliar, like you should just use that as a like over maybe 15, 20 games is is how you look Good. at generally those things are a season long even. Um, and you know that's how you sort of evaluate whether a team is consistently creating chances or stopping chances or whatever the case may be. But the North London Derby in particular is a great example of the ideological or theoretical concerns that we were talking about because you say okay Tottenham racked up a pretty good rating there and they won so that would say that they're the better team in that instance I would argue against that and saying that while Tottenham won and they created or were subject to chances a lot of those chances came at the mistakes at Arsenal's end that were mm-hmm. some of them were due to to players uh, in particular um, but also if you look at the approach the sort of tactical approach like Chris mentioned there, Arteta has either come out and said or it's generally been implied that the players he has are not necessarily in some cases fit for the ideas that he wants to input. But if you're inputting a system and then changing out the pieces that need, 
it's a quicker transition to the success that can become that can come of that system later on than if you do it inversely, which is I think the first question you, you ask. Like, is it, if you if you display the the brilliance that you can achieve without a system, then it follows that maybe when implementing a system, you can have even greater success. But I think it works sort of inversely. You have to put the structure down before you start implementing the pieces. Because in some cases, even if a player is very good, the pieces can be incorrect or can be insufficient for what you're trying to do. So I think in the case of Arsenal versus Tottenham, Tottenham have no method of repeatability when it comes to the chances that they were subject to and thus won by. Whereas Arsenal, if they continue to implement this system, they will eventually get there and they they can buy the players and they can get the players that will allow them to make that sense of repeatability and success more consistent. Whereas Manchester United are beholden to the individual quality of those players and nothing else. If one of them gets injured or if one of them doesn't have a particularly good day or God forbid, a team comes up with a tactical or strategical structure to nullify that specific strength, then you don't really have anything. And so that's why at the top level, you have not just one or two of the things, but you have a confluence of these effects. You have a team-oriented strategical right. uh, you know, implementation or, of approach, and then you have insanely gifted players. And that's what makes champions. That's what makes historic teams. That's what makes great teams. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I, I understand uh, that element. And, and I definitely think that... Difficult to call at this point. But I, I'll say this as well. Uh, and one thing we continually don't uh, acknowledge on this podcast, uh, at least when I'm on it, because it, uh, you know about 100% of the content becomes theoretical at that point. <laughs> Fucking good to watch, isn't it, Chris? And actually, Manchester United are really great to watch right now because you're not quite sure what's going to happen next. Uh, and I don't even mean <laughs> they're going to win or they're going to lose. I just mean, like, I'm genuinely watching thinking... I feel, um, and you know, I'm not making this because of the rate. Uh, obviously, they're both black guys, but I mean, I enjoy watching LeBron James because I think what brilliant thing is he going to do next? And I enjoy watching Paul Pogba because I think what brilliant thing is he going to do next? And, you know, I, I genuinely think Paul Pogba is one of the world-class players in the Premier League right now. And it is showing for Manchester United. Yeah, I, th- I think something that defined Manchester United at their peak was a foreboding sense of they could produce something instantaneously as you alluded to there. And I I do see that same instance with them now. Um, I I must say as well, to me, the whole thing that they're going through now, it does feel so damning towards Jose Mourinho because you look (laughs) at the relationship he had with Anti Martial, the relationship he had with Paul Pogba, those two were potentially at different stages on their way out of Old Trafford. And now they look like two fantastic centrepieces to build the future of the team around. Now, granted, he Paul Pogba didn't necessarily have the smoothest of relationships with Solskjaer all the time. But I think if I can give him credit for anything at the moment, it's that he handled that situation actually very well. I thought there was an authority, but also a flexibility to the way he handled the situation that meant Popper was never fully ostracized, but he also wasn't entirely appeased. He had a to genius, come and meet if them. Yeah, he had to come and meet them halfway. And and I think that man management, we can we can question Solskjaer's tactical ability, and I think there are merits to doing so. I think his ability to handle that situation bodes well for his future in terms of the management of the squad. Because I think even he has been very much aware of the fact that you can't just trade off 
I worked under Sir right. Alex Ferguson. I I was this great at the football club forever. It it, it just doesn't work like that. I think the same is and true it, of Zidane. And and this yeah. is in a, in a funny way we I think for a, for a large period we've become quite um, disposable with our managers in terms of if it doesn't work almost instantly or we don't see instant improvement, get rid. But I think with a little bit of time and patience, we're starting to see who Solskjaer is as a manager. It, does that mean he's the long-term solution? I don't feel comfortable saying yes or no either way at this point. But I am quite fascinated to see where he takes it and how this team develops mm. under him because there have certainly been some shoots of positivity that I could attach to. Yeah, and I, there is something very enjoyable about that. It's frustrating. They're an incredibly likable uh, squad in terms of, you know, Rashford, Greenwood. Yeah, Greenwood. Cooper. Greenwood's outrageous, uh, by the way. Yeah, I mean, Green, Greenwood's talent in just in itself is is incredibly satisfying to watch. Um, and, you know, it's just enjoyable to see young, uh, well, Pogba's not English, but, you know, young English guys doing incredibly well and getting everyone exorbitantly excited for when Gareth Southgate ultimately plays them in the same formation that we've always played it. Um, and we crash out of a tournament and say, another generation wasted to a 23-year-old man. Um, it's it, let, Let's also uh, then look at um, other people who have crashed out of things recently. And Chris, there's a bit of a post-mortem going on at Norwich at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh and I've got to admit, I feel a bit sorry for them because at the start of the season, everyone was so... Uh, we were partying like Pookie, if you will. And now we're pukeying after the party. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Wonderful. Thank you. There. I just came up with that in the moment. James Richardson, I'm coming for you. Um, I, I Yeah. So Stuart Webber gave an interesting interview um, this week in which... I think he spoke quite candidly about first and foremost taking responsibility for Norwich's relegation as sort of the head of recruitment guy in charge of, of that stuff. Um, he also said that some of the players weren't good enough um, and that was part of the problem was that in simple terms, the quality wasn't there. But I also think that what he touched on that was quite interesting, interesting was the fact that the club financially are under no obligation to sell the likes of Todd Cantwell, Emi Buendia, um, trying to think who else, uh, Ben Godfrey, Max Ahrens, who usually, I think if you look back to kind of how these situations play out, where team comes up with promising youngsters and gets quickly relegated, they do kind of filter off very quickly. Um, and I think it, to me, yeah, Norwich have failed. They've gone down. They've been relegated. That's, there's a, that's valid, uh, that criticism. I, I can't help but admire, though, the fact that they've gone against the grain throughout the season in terms of they came up and they didn't change who they were. They, f- they wanted to play in the same style that had got them up um, in the same way that they didn't just throw money at new players just to bring them in and spend that money and waste it. They opted to stick with the players that signed the contracts next summer. And, and Weber touched on that and said that, you know, you can't sign that contract last year when the spoils were being handed out and then expect you're going to leave quickly and quietly when the season has been a failure, which I, I think is, is very admirable. I, I like Weber a lot, actually. I think there's a, he's a, clearly a very well-read, um, forward-thinking, as you say, young man, but I think he might be a bit older than I am. But he's someone that <laughs> I think I would love to genuinely just sit down and have a chat with for about an hour just to try and understand him a little bit more. Um, 
And I, and I think Norwich are in fairly safe hands. He said that Daniel Farker will stay as manager. He thinks they might be able to target potentially better players from a financial perspective next year because, for the most part, I think a lot of their deals have been younger guys that were, it might sound harsh to say, a bit of a punt, but players that you know were under the radar. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just think that Norwich in general have been a really nice addition to the Premier League. I think... What it tells me about promoted teams is... Yeah, that's what I was going for here, is I want to know what, what this means for... Because a lot of people will probably remember them as the team in 20th. But that, that's possibly an unfair characterization of what they've been aiming for, at least. Well, I, I, just think- want to let, I just want to let the viewers in on a quick little... Little tidbit of information here. Lawrence is having an ice cream. What? Um, <laughs> it's midnight. He's got mid-podcast. a fucking problem. I've got a like, movie called of all the, I'm I got sorry, a, Chris. All the foods you could eat mid podcast. Uh, an ice cream is, I mean, that that is that takes a fucking stones. I mean, here's the other thing, right? Kristen, you've lived with me. You yeah. know what this is like. Yeah. Is there one thing that I love? He loves ice cream. He genuinely exactly. loves ice cream. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, yeah. If he ever went missing, that's where I'd go first. <laughs> right, okay, um, fair enough, yeah. But no, I, I think even in that failure, we can take something from it. And I appreciate that people will say Sheffield United are, are the key, key story this, this season because not only have they stayed up, they've thrived. And I think that's right. And the same is true of both teams is that the way that you get up, you almost have to look at, and Ali Maxwell made this point, so I don't want to claim it as my own, what is the tactical compromise you will have to make when you get there? Can you bridge the talent gap to make it so there's continuity in the way you play? Or do you, do you feel like you need to make a tactical adjustment to accommodate the fact that your talent level will not rise drastically and so will not be as um, advantageous to you in the top flight? And I think for Norwich, they tried... Let's just see if this can get us through. And to be fair, in the early season, it did. And I imagine there may be some people in in East Anglia who think, well, if the season hadn't stopped, maybe we could have done something. You know, we'll never know how momentum sapping that was. In the same way that playing in front of no fans has probably damaged them a little bit. In the same way, I think it's benefited other teams. Um, And so, yeah, I I think it would be unfair just to consign them as failures and nothing else. Because actually, I think they're an interesting window and lesson into promotion and how you uh, adapt to the top flight when you come up in the way that they did. To flip that then, uh, Nick, I mean, a lot of people fascinated with Eddie Howe and Bournemouth for years. It's uh, it's going less well at this point. Is there just a general feeling really for, for you and I think for a lot of people that the project has gone on a little too long and there's only so there's inertia that almost sets in at some point? Well, I think uh, Chris speaks to the point that is consistent amongst any team in, in the Premier League there um, with saying like there is an element of, of paradox, one might say, for promoted or relegated teams in the sense like if you win the championship playing, for example, let's say how Leeds have played, um, you will not get promoted and then continue to play that way because the talent disparity is so significant. I think that's why you look at some, that's why you look at a team like Sheffield and they've made a tactical adjustment specific to how they played before and sort of adapted it to the Premier League. The use of like the overlapping central defender to catch teams on the break and, and to make a, you know, numerical overload in specific situations has worked very well for them. I think next year, 
it will pose a problem because people are wise to it. But if you look at Norwich, like they probably wanted to play a bit too idealistic regarding the talent disparity. That said, they have a lot of really gifted players and the managers seemingly pretty talented at implementing that. It's just how do you, you know, there's an element, like I said, there's an element of a paradox to it where you cannot play as you played before when the talent landscape was completely different. So it, 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 it's 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 difficult because, again, there is such a significant disparity in the concentration of talent in the Premier League and in football as a whole. Um, but uh, but yeah, it just depends on, on how I think it's a good thing as a as a as a club that Norwich stick with the same person and stick with the same group of people because that provides an element of consistency. I think if you look at the inverse approach, which is someone like Watford, where they're constantly changing out managers, that provides a different advantage to the situation that has allowed them to stay in the Premier League, but they're edging closer to the bottom and and maybe they'll be out of the Premier League in a few years. So the the approach has to be in some way consistent um, and you'll reap certain benefits from different approaches, obviously. Kristen, um, then there is one very unique exhibit, the Elza. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's... I I think... Nico will correct me if I'm wrong here. I feel like his team's... He's good friends with the or, or the biographer for Bielsa, obviously. <laughs> historically... <laughs> John McKenzie. Um, historically, Bielsa teams start very high and then slowly dip as, as the season wears on. To their credit, it seems like they've kind of booked that trend a little bit this season um, and, and are on course for promotion. But I think the the thing with that is if you... When I watched them against Arsenal, which maybe isn't the greatest barometer, but I thought they showed up quite well, actually, and, and maybe but for a little bit of quality, they could have got something more from that game. So it would lead me to think Arsenal that maybe... Arsenal or Leeds? <laughs> Leeds. But, but, but see, that's the thing. Like you, you play that game 38 times, right? And mm-hmm. and like you said, like they were lacking in an element of quality. Like that, that, pan, that pans out pretty pretty poorly for Leeds over the so like I don't even know how Bielsa in the Premier League is going to be such an interesting thing because he obviously has an idealistic manner of play or 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 a, an ideology that is consistent with something that we're familiar with at the top end mm-hmm. but Leeds are not going to be able to bridge that financial gap to to get to a place I think where they reach you know the the the, the top of the table you know no, well, yeah, I think scouting is obviously amazing. I, I think <laughs> yeah, I think exactly. their aim will be survival in the first, and that, yeah. and, that, and that's where I think they will not go the way of Norwich, and they will spend money. Um, the pro- the problem they've got right off the bat is they're currently in disagreement with RB Leipzig about a deal to sign uh, Augustan, who they got on loan, and it was what a written, signing that would be though. Yeah, exactly. It was written into the contract if they got promoted they would have to sign him permanently regardless of what he did. And he's not done anything of note. Um, <laughs> exactly. and, Patrick and, Bamford, my true son, justifying yeah. his position. Leeds' counter-argument, for those curious, is that um, that clause has become null and void now, I think because like June 30th has passed or like he's not so part of the So did you say team. Claude has become null and void? Oh, <laughs> sorry, my bad. Okay. That clause has become yeah. null and void because they have passed the end of his contracted time at the club and they haven't been promoted. So this is a wonderful moment for lawyers across the globe um, as they (laughs) um, convene for the annual pedants conference 
Um, <laughs> to be fair, I think I think they're just called lawyers. <laughs> and so that will potentially, if, if they have to commit to buying him, that will influence their uh, spending somewhat, I would imagine, because I think it's a £20 million deal, or €20 million, Euro, but either way, it's a significant amount of money. Um, and so, yeah, I, I still think that they will look to invest a fair amount in that quality. At that point, it's always how good are they at sourcing that quality? Um, Correct. That, I, and that, that's, that's the interesting side, isn't it? I, I don't... The comparison that jumped into my head when Nico was talking there before was David Wagner at, at Huddersfield and the fact that he brought up a style that shared elements, I think, in terms of its quite intense pressing and counter-pressing more specifically. And it did work in the first season. I would say the game as a whole in the Premier League has changed even in that short period to where more teams, I think, are pressing and using that as a, a tool in their arsenal. So whether that loses... And, and the pressing teams are also doing now more than pressing. Yes, exactly. And and I wonder if it will hold the same level of influence in 2020, 2021 than it did when Wagner came up with, with Huddersfield. Um, I, the important caveat with all of that is, I don't think it's a, a hot take to say that... Uh, Marcelo Bielsa is a better coach than David Wagner, so we'll likely have more nuance, more um, experience first and foremost to lean on, but also just more quality in the way that he puts that team together. So yeah, I think Nico's absolutely spot on when he says it will be fascinating to watch Bielsa in the Premier then, League if, if that does then, happen. Then to finish off, uh, I don't know how much of Atalanta either of you have been watching, but obviously uh, with the Champions League draw, and with everyone getting very excited over the fact that Atalanta could indeed win the Champions League. This year. <laughs> That's right, guys. They could indeed win the Champions League because they're on the right side. What is to stop, uh, first of all, uh, Atalanta uh, and what has made them good? Because I've got to admit, I've only really taken a very recent interest in them because I was, uh, again, busy with other things before. Um, <laughs> what is what is the, the allure of Atalanta, Nico? Um, and because these guys potentially in the next five games could possibly equal the scoring record. They've got something like 14 goals or something to make up in that time, but they're scoring at such an incredible rate um, in these games that, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I would say that it's somewhat similar to what we experienced like really well uh, with Maurizio Sarri's Napoli team of a few years ago. And it's consistent right. with what any team wants to be good at. And that's just creating space for their forward players. Like they have an ability to create transition, not in the same way that Liverpool do it, but in, uh, you know, in moving the ball quickly and using possession in a way that allows them to take advantage of the most amount of space going forward. Um, so it's not necessarily a counterattacking team, nor is it like a super transitional team. It's just that they maintain possession in a way that forces the opponent to engage them quickly. And then they exploit that space further down the field. Right. Okay. And so, and obviously in Italy, um, it's going down incredibly well uh, with all those inc- great defending sides. <laughs> um, and uh, but Chris, what is to stop a team in the Premier League doing this kind of thing? Because it's fair to say that they haven't exactly um, assembled this squad at the, the massive expense of some of the other teams in Syria. Patience, perhaps. First and foremost, I mean, I, I'm not sure. Thomas Rongen tells me they've struggled since they came back, so I'm surprised we're giving them this much praise. Um, I mean, come on now, Chris. They are <laughs> they they are uh, they are any team. They're they're a team that's not one of the traditional sides. No, they're not, and that's wonderful. Um, 
and yeah, I think what's what stops them. I is think Neymar. <laughs> I, I do, think. Do you genuinely think it is someone like something like that? I think patience is part of it. I think the other problem is is that having spoken to agents, scouts, people like that, when someone sees a Premier League team coming, they take out the blank check because they almost anticipate them overpaying in some way or another. Um, right. It's funny. I think Stuart Webb was just complaining about the way that uh, Gigi Bacali, the infamous Gigi Bacali, had been um, leaking information to the Romanian press about a deal he was trying to do uh, for a player. And I think that's true of teams across the, the continent is that when they see a Premier League team arrive, they do tack on something of a tax, if you will, um, because they know that they have more financial clout or more financial muscle. And that's the consequence of it. So I think it's a lot harder to, to find those bargain deals. Not impossible, but harder. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so, it, it, yeah, that... Uh... Maybe there's a relative Atalanta to happen. Um, and do we do we genuinely feel... I mean, they have, in, in the night of recording, they have just beaten Brescia 6-2, um, which isn't really a very Serie A score, is it? Well, for them. Um, I think, if there, is, yeah. I think oh. if there is a team that could fall prey to them outside of Manchester City, uh, it could be PSG because, again, PSG plays similarly ideologically or like philosophically. They hold a very high line. They like to maintain possession. They like to open up space through their passing by engaging the press. Like Essentially, it's like, if you think about it, it's like, you know, if you've ever seen a matador, they hold up the cape and they ask the bull to come charging. The bull comes charging and then they've succeeded in what they're trying to do. So they circulate them in the neck. Exactly. They, they circulate the ball so that the press is activated. Once the press is activated, they circulate it to the other end and use that space that's opened up to, to go forward and create chances. PSG hold a very high line. They are susceptible to quick players on the break and, and teams that are able to do that. So, if, like I said, if there is a team that can fall susceptible to an underdog like Atalanta, then certainly uh, I could certainly see that happening. If it were, say, if they drew Atletico Madrid, I would take Madrid every time. Um, but it's going to be a really interesting draw. I think even if they get past BSG, there's not much of a chance of them winning the whole thing. I think, again, this is like some this is like one of those things we just attach ourselves onto the underdog because we know that the system is not equitable and that the same three teams will win the Champions League every year. But I, I get I get what you're saying. Uh, I mean, first of all, Rafa Benitez and Igor Biscan, 2005. <laughs> um, but secondly, uh, if there ever was a year, and I've just I've just finished uh, recording a basketball podcast, the Hoop Genius podcast, go check it out if you're interested in basketball. Uh, lovely guys on there. Uh, and Chris has actually been a guest on it before, so it does have some reasonable opinions as well. Um if ever there were, I was saying on that, if ever there was a year that, you know, we're looking at uh, Mavericks or a, um, you know, the Denver Nuggets winning something, uh, yes. even though they don't necessarily have the perfect squad assembled, some of those guys will look at that and go, look, next year, we aren't going to have this opportunity because we won't be put in this extremely unique position. We will be playing the league at the same time as we're playing the Champions League, et cetera, et cetera. This year, we can concentrate purely on the Champions League and trying to win it. There'll be a World Cup feel to it. And yeah. at every World Cup, there is a team that everyone falls in love with that's slightly less likely. Uh, granted, I can't really think of the last team that made... Maybe, it, uh, 
Chris, am I wrong in thinking that maybe, you know, either at the Euros or the World Cup, it's really like a Greece or someone like that? Was that the last unlikely team to make it to a, a final or a semi-final? Yeah. And I think that was the same year that Porto beat Monaco, didn't they? In the Champions maybe, League final? Ah, oh my good point. Sorry, Porto and Monaco. And maybe I'm a little arrogant to think that England weren't in some way that kind of a team at the last Euros. You um, know what team I think would do really well in a short tournament style football? Liverpool. Competition? Football, Liverpool. <laughs> football. Or Liverpool Football Club. Football Liverpool Sorry, Club. Sorry, Football Liverpool Football Club. Liverpool. No, yeah. I, it's funny because when this was announced, I was like, oh, that's perfect for Liverpool. Oh, wait, they're out. They're yes. out of the competition. Oh, wait. Yeah, it was an unjustly played game in which everyone... <laughs> oh, wait. They're uh, out of the competition. So who's second in that tactical uh, idea? I think, I think it could be the team that's very good at being versatile... Atletico Madrid. <laughs> Atletico Madrid. Sorry, my bad. Okay, the team, ultimately, the guys who hold the head of Liverpool and wear his flesh. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, I mean, that's kind of exciting then because well, but, but, these but guys... But, like, the rapidity, the rapidity at which these games are going to be played holds up to a style that conserves the energy and the physical well-being of its players. I don't think it's outside the realm. It's outlandish to suggest that Atletico could, could once more get to the final and then lose. <laughs> Against a Barcelona. Against or a, Real Madrid. Uh, I, I, yeah, sorry. I can't remember which side of the draw these guys are actually drawn on. They're playing um, RB Leipzig next. Uh, but are you, are you therefore assuming that uh, your own boys do not make maybe, it through? Maybe. I, I, hope, I, hope, I hope they do, but you know, you never know. Because uh, Atletico Madrid, since coming back, have obviously um, flattered to deceive, I guess, at times, it's fair to say. Uh, I'm looking down the results. I've watched... A couple of those games. Only really have they once thrashed aside in there. Uh, maybe twice if you if you take the Mallorca uh, result. They're, not, they're but, not thrashers, the Atletico Madrid. They're they're more, no, but, you know. But at the same time, what I mean is these guys are not scoring as many as they might need to. And um, you only need one goal, what, Lawrence. You only need one uh, goal. To well, win a as game, I know but. from being a Liverpool fan. Um, <laughs> Liverpool are the side in the Premier League who have won by a one-goal margin the most in the Premier League this season. Oh, Dave's popped into the call. I didn't know that. Uh, my bad, yeah. Uh, more useless stats later on. Um, it, it, it is an interesting one. I, I get what you're saying. Atletico have won. Uh, but then why can't Atalanta do it? That's what I'm saying. They can. Are you asking me that? Or are you just asking that? To the, uh, it to was the it was rhetorical. But I guess if we are finishing off and we're sort of casualizing they the conversation. Can, well, they can do it. I just don't think they will. Okay, I, I get it. Uh, in which case, I'm betting on Atalanta. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Chris, you're drinking something or you're smoking something? I can't see. He's smoking something. Water bottle. Water bottle. Okay, it was uh, matcha tea, clearly. Uh, well, this has been lovely, guys. That's been almost uh, an hour, over an hour and a half of constant football chat for you at home. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it and you want to give us your feedback, uh, then let us know. Uh, it would be great if you could review the podcast on iTunes, but it would also be lovely if you could give us a tweet at the front three or our individual ats. It's been good to chat to you, to you guys. Uh, Chris, you go back to your writing. What are you writing about this week? Uh, nothing in particular. Brilliant. Uh, I hope they do it's well in the Champions piece. League. Uh, good, yeah, good. And uh, Nico, what about you? I just wrote a piece about uh, Arrival and the traversable limits of our language. And then I'll be writing about a TV show that I love very much called Easy. 
What's easy? Uh, it's a Netflix series that is exceptional. Right. Am, am I also right, Nico, in thinking that you probably is one of the few people globally that I will speak to who's seen uh, Atlanta? Yes. I, right, I'm correct. surprised that that's not big in London. Uh, pretty much everyone I speak to almost refuses to watch it, and it's a very difficult series to convince someone to get into because I feel like you have to like uh, Donald Glover's music, first of all, uh, not because the series likes it, but because um, a lot of people don't. They see him as a bit of a out-there artist, I guess, or some of them see him as a, like a rapper or weird some sort of... There's some sort of weird image around Donald Glover. That's strange. Like, He's I, an extremely yeah. talented, informed, intelligent, and wonderful human being to my estimation. So he's all good. And an amazing singer. Yeah. Uh, it's just very difficult to convince people. Uh, and I don't really have many people in my friendship group who've seen Atlanta. So, uh, And I reveled in it when it did come out because it was everything that I love. It um, is wonderful. And Atlanta's a great city. So, I've never been, uh, but I understand... Wink, wink, what you're saying about uh, that city. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us on the front three this week. He's talking about uh, strip clubs, folks. I'm t- I, totally. Having never been to Atlanta, I can uh, I can tell you I've seen many documentaries on that city. Um, or I'm pretty sure there were documentaries. Found at Brazzers.com. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a documentary website. Um, it's been good to spend time with you guys this week. Uh, next week, the highly potent Adam Boltwood will be back. Not sexually. Uh, uh, and hopefully I will also be back as well if I am not indeed cancelled in some capacity see you guys there see you on Twitter uh, and see you in the iTunes is iTunes is Apple Music and Spotify Reviews Music